Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Chainlink God podcast, where we break down the information asymmetry on all things blockchains, oracles, and smart contracts. So a few weeks ago, Chainlink hosted its first in-person conference in New York City, bringing together some of the key thought leaders and uh, industry experts across both the Web 2 and the Web 3 space. And at this conference, there were a lot of announcements, there were a lot of talks, a lot of discussion, including Swift partnering with Chainlink on cross-chain interoperability. But in particular, there were a number of programs that were announced under the banner of what's called Economics 2.0, really focused around increasing revenue, reducing costs, enabling staking. And these programs have major implications for the Chainlink network over the long term. And we thought it would be useful to kind of break these down and provide our insight and input on what these programs are and generally how they piece together and what it means for Chainlink. So to help me discuss Economics 2.0, I have with me the Crypto Oracle. Welcome. How was SmartCon? Yeah, that's, you know, first I want to say I, I've actually never been to a crypto conference. So, you know, I'll t- you could take my feedback with a little bit of a grain of salt since I don't have anything to compare it to. But, you know, I actually, uh, there was a good video by... I think Barry Egan um, in the crypto Twitter sphere, who summed up his SmartCon experience, which I thought he did a good job of kind of summarizing a lot of people's thoughts. And I thought it was, it's like really kind of um, related a lot to like the way I kind of view Chainlink. It was a very like professional conference. Like everything was done to a very high quality, like the branding and and the locate, like, like the building and everything that was set up and just the organization and everything. It was like just very professional. Like I felt like, you know, like, cause you see these conferences like online of like Bitcoin Miami and these NFT conferences and nothing wrong with that, but like, they're just like, just seems like a bunch of chill and moon boys kind of, and like very flashy and party and that's fine. Uh, but Chainlink is like, I feel like it's a lot of like real people that are building real things and that are generally interested in kind of, building technology, you know, getting this technology into adoption and they're just doing real shit to be honest. And, and, and so I really like that. And, and to be honest, I, I thought, you know, to, to host this kind of conference and get this kind of turnout, you know, in a bear market and, you know, in this tough conditions was, was really well, you know, and especially it's the first in-person conference. Like you can't just like launch your first in-person conference, you know, and be consensus, you know, it's just not how it works. So I thought it was a, a great foundation to kind of build off of. And, and, and honestly, I thought it was a real fun time. A lot of like the average, I think IQ of that conference was like quite high. And I think that was the coolest thing. And, and, and obviously to meet some community members, to meet, you know, different people from the, the Chainlink team was like really, you know, one of the coolest things to have, you know, those conversations that you, you can't have really with, you know, normal people in your day-to-day life. Yeah. I think you put it well, like it has a, like a mixture of like a professional vibe, but also like very focused, like eat Denver's a little bit more raw and like kind of degen developer focused for uh, consensus is more like suit and tie. And like, there's nothing wrong with those, but that's just kind of a slightly different vibe and smart con. Like you could really feel it as like a, see as like a melting pot of web two and web three people coming, coming together and talking about what's actually happening in the industry. What's, what's the use case. It's not just like moon boy shilling type things, which I thought was, I thought it was a good vibe. It was a good mixture of people there for sure. Yeah, and I think that's really, you know, Chainlink's niche, you know, and I think that'll be kind of a good foundation for how that conference will build over time as you get some of the best researchers in the space, you get some of the biggest, you know, Web3 projects in the space, but you also get all these like 
traditional Web2 uh, players and to get this kind of, and, and also just a lot of crypto enthusiasts that are just honestly really interested in the technology and crypto in general and to like get this kind of mix from all these different fields, I feel like is um, it's going to lead to a lot of good conversations, probably a lot of business opportunities over time. So I think over time that will, you know, that'll really kind of like a consensus, but a little bit more intimate and a little bit more, you know, you get aspects, you know, that it's more crypto focused almost in a way. So, you know, I'm, I'm excited for, uh, you know, how it goes next year. And I think, I mean, it's only going to get better. It's the first in-person one. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how how they top it next year. It, it was really cool meeting a lot of people on the Chainlink Labs team, a bunch of people in the community, a lot of OGs in the community. Uh, heard a lot of feedback from people. Like, I, I didn't hear, like, we want more tweets, like, we want more blogs, we just more podcasts. I want more podcasts. CLG, when's the next podcast? <laughs> so I'm happy to happy to do more of that in a have CO on and provide our thoughts. But I think in general, it was a really good conference. And I think it was a lot of good announcements as well. A lot of tangible updates, I think, which a lot of people appreciated. And I appreciated with like CCIP, Deco, FSS, like what the progress of those products have been over the past couple of years and some demos and POCs. And like, I thought it was very tangible, I think. So uh, I'm excited to see what the next SmartCon brings. Uh, hopefully it's also in person. I expect it to be. I'd be very disappointed if it's not. But I think kind of transitioning over to, you know, some of the bigger announcements that were at SmartCon, which were focused around Econ2, build, scale, staking, what do these mean? I think to kick off this conversation, it helps to have kind of a holistic overview of value capture and oracles and the, the economics of this sphere in general. So CEO, do you want to kind of step into this and provide some context to people on what exactly is value capture and oracles, what the opportunity there really is? Yeah, sure. So yeah, so transitioning, you know, this podcast is going to really just focus on Econ 2.0 and kind of tying it all together. Uh, I think to to understand, you know, the different programs that were announced at SmartCon and, and how those tied together, you kind of have to first understand, you know, what Chainlink is trying to achieve and like what and what is the market that the, the, the potential market that, you know, they can capture. Um, and I think, for, you know, the best way to think about Chainlink, in my opinion, is it's a platform where you can build or access basically any type of trust-minimized service. So getting a lot of the properties that you would get on a blockchain, but getting that through an Oracle network. And you're, you're using an Oracle network because you can't build that service directly on a blockchain. And that could be for a variety of reasons, whether there's technical constraints, privacy concerns, costs, uh, legal concerns. It can be whatever. So it's, uh, you know, and that can encapsulate a wider range of services. We already see that today, you know, data feeds. How can I create a data feed that is transparent, that is not controlled by a single source, and then use that to trigger an application? See that with VRF. How can I create a transparent, open source, verifiable source of randomness that I can use to trigger my gaming application? Same thing with Keeper, or well, now it's called Chainlink Automation you know, triggering on-chain functions on time in a reliable manner. And obviously we'll see that with CCIP, FSS. So um, broad range of services here. And, and I think what Ch Chainlink is uniquely is unique in that it can capture value on any blockchain, on any L2, and really in any, L, you know, eventually if there's L3s. Uh, so we can, all these services could be used on all these different blockchains, L2s, L3s. And you could also see, I think over time, 
Chainlink service directly uh, Web2 applications. So like VRF could be used by a traditional game. Uh, it could be used by, you know, some company that's doing a, a marketing promotion that involves random giveaway or something. Um, and you could even see price feeds maybe and some other uh, types of trust minimized services that go directly into Web2. So you're, you're talking about every blockchain, I mean, every on-chain platform across a variety of services, which I think is not a lot of people understand, you know, because blockchain is only going to capture value from the dApps on its chain. Dapps have a specific use case, and that's the value they can capture. But Chainlink as an infrastructure play can really capture value from everywhere. I think if you look at how Chainlink, um, you know, so, so you want to create this platform for services. How do you get this into existence? Well, if you you have to go through this growth phase, and this growth phase is still continuing to this day, but you know you 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 need to get these Oracle networks up and running, and you and you need some type of incentive. They're not just going to run because users aren't going to use them unless they're providing a valuable service, and the service providers aren't going to run them unless pe people are paying them. And so what Chainlink has done is basically use some of its initial token supply to subsidize these services. You know, basically get. Kind of like a block rewards in blockchains is they're giving they're issuing Oracle rewards and those Oracle rewards are getting node operators to provide these services and then users are consuming these services and starting and paying fees into the network and so this is what we've really seen ever since Chainlink mainnet went live is is this kind of bootstrapping phase of getting these services into production getting Chainlink onto all these different chains getting them all these different DApps to use all these different services and we've really seen Chainlink establish itself as a standard across price feeds, across data feeds, across VRF, more and more over automation. And I think you'll see this over CCIP and other services. I think you make a good point. It's like what fundamentally, even like stepping back a little bit, like tokens fundamentally solve like the chicken or egg problem of being able to create a network in the first place before you have paying users to reach that point. And so any goal for a network or really any standard, any company as well, is to create this network effect, this growth phase of actually onboarding a network effect of users who over time through the revenue and the user fees that they provide can become sustainable over the long term. And so in my mind, when it comes to things like value capture, it's really equivalent to economic sustainability, where over time you're able to bootstrap these services into existence. You can support and reduce the early costs for users so you can create this uh, this economic moat, this network effect around your project, around your ecosystem, then over time, as you've uh, established market dominance, then you can have the value capture economic system in place in order to support the long-term sustainability and the economic growth of those of those services. As you know, these services cannot be uh, subsidized forever, and service providers are not going to continue to provide services if there isn't a profit margin for them to do so. So over time, you know, the value capture is not just extracting value like a centralized corporation, but in the context of these decentralized protocols, it's actually all about economic sustainability to support the network over the long term without a high rate of emissions or inflation and providing that margin where you want to incentivize not only new service providers to join the ecosystem, but for there to be kind of a competitive dynamic between service providers within the ecosystem. And you can see this, you know, in the Chainlink ecosystem where there are independent node operators who generate revenue from the data and the services they provide, then those get constructed together into networks. And even those networks over time can compete with each other for uh, user revenue by providing better, better services and reinvesting the revenue into providing even better, more secure, more reliable services. And so Chainlink has kind of reached a point where it's been focused on growth for a very long time. The industry is in a very early state 
still use cases are being worked out. And it's kind of reaching a point, like CEO mentioned, where things like data feeds have, you know, they're reaching market saturation in the sense that the market that exists today in the ecosystem, you know, chain link data feeds are the standard. Like you use Chainlink or your your protocol is going to get exploited because we've seen that time and time again when projects try to roll their own oracles. And so now the network is kind of shifting towards not just growth, hyper growth, but sustainable long-term growth plus value capture that can feed back into that sustainable growth loop. And so it's kind of a, a bit of a mind shift where there's still growth because the industry, I mean, DeFi is only like 50 billion and there are trillions and quadrillions of dollars that flow through the traditional financial system. So we're still at the very early stage, but within the market that exists today, Chainlink is the industry standard across specific service verticals. And so to fuel that growth going forward and to basically set up the network uh, to be ready for the point where the inflection point happens, where, you know, whether it's institutional adoption or some definitive Web3 use case comes in that reaches mass adoption, because Chainlink is in the place where it's the industry standard and is setting up this economic framework for sustainable growth, it could support the rapid growth and expansion to mass adoption. Because if you're not the industry standard by the time mass adoption, that inflection point hits, you're not going to be able to catch up in time to competitors. But if you already have that established moat, and you already have a sustainable growth model, and you're moving towards increasingly sustainable, increasingly value capture, even if the revenue in the early stages is low, you've set yourself up in a position where you can continue to capture value over time. And like CEO mentioned, for Chainlink in particular, it's not just any use case. It's not just one blockchain. It's any dApp across any blockchain for any use case vertical. And so that's kind of the inflection point as I see it transitioning over time. Yeah, the, the way I kind of, in, in the simplest sense, I guess, to describe my interpretation of Econ 2.0 is, so before, you know, in, in the tradition, in the kind of original economic design of Chainlink, or the starting point, I should say, it's not really, it wasn't really design, it was just the way to, the only way to really start the network was really just pure growth. You could even say it was hyper growth, where it's basically using token emissions to help fuel the growth of the network. This is the same, basically, as a block reward. However, now there's kind of a transition, in my opinion, where you're growing, but how, so, and then two dynamics are kind of being introduced. How can the token capture some of that value and grow alongside the network? And on the secondary, how, how do you get to a point where token emissions are no longer needed? So basically the service, the users are paying user fees to the service providers and the service providers are providing a service and, and the dApps have enough fees or, or may, you know, are used enough where they generate the revenue needed, or they design their DAP in a way where the users are the DAP users collectively that are using an Oracle service are covering the fees for that service, and you know, there's no token emissions needed at all. So I think there's really kind of two dynamics where you create a more of a holistic uh, economic model that makes sense for all the various stakeholders um, in the Chainlink ecosystem that you either use Chainlink or participate in Chainlink. Yeah, and I think when it when it comes to like Econ 2, which is kind of like the wrapper around this transitionary period towards full sustainability based on user fees, there's a couple of different dynamics you could really bucket things under, you know, increasing revenue, reducing operating costs, and then staking, which is a way to, to bring in new ecosystem participants and security. And so starting with like the first one, you know, when you're introducing a value capture system, that's going to be derived from revenue. And, you know, traditional... Nothing's really traditional in crypto, but like larger scale dApps, you know, they generate revenue. The Aave, the Compound, the Synthetics, these are more established applications that 
through the services they provide to users. They generate revenue, and that revenue could be in stable coins and other assets, and they can use a portion of that revenue to pay for the Oracle services that they need to operate and that they need to exist. But there is kind of a, there's been like a whole uh, in a sense, over time where you have these very early stage projects that need Oracle services to exist, where their core value proposition of their DAP requires some Oracle service, data feeds, VRF, automation, CCIP, whatever, that they need in order to exist, but they don't have any revenue because these are pre-revenue projects or they're pre-launch projects. And so how do these early stage projects join the ecosystem and pay for services if they don't have anything to pay with. And while these projects don't have revenue, what they do have is tokens. You know, that, that's one of the core value propositions. One of the innovations of crypto is the ability to create these tokens to bootstrap your ecosystem, subsidize growth. And a part of that is being able to use those tokens to pay for services. And so one of the core programs that was announced at SmartCon around Econ2 was a program called Chainlink Build which is effectively a program where these early stage pre-revenue projects can provide a percentage of their token supply, uh, which we've seen around three to 5% that they can use to pay for Oracle services and then re receive enhanced support and other benefits like early access to channeling services, custom data feeds, and uh, being able to basically get the support that they need to get off the ground so they can evolve into a later stage, more evolved, more established, more established DApp. And, these tokens that they provide to the Chainlink ecosystem can then be paid out to the service providers who provide the services that those projects need. So node operators, stakers, and et cetera. And so this is kind of a, I see it as like a win-win economic relationship where the Chainlink network needs user fees to become long-term long -term sustainable. And these early stage projects need Oracle services, but don't have a traditional capability to pay for those services. And so this effectively allows these projects to join the ecosystem pay tokens into the ecosystem, which can then be uh, redirected to entities like stakers who support those services. And it's an interesting dynamic where ultimately stakers, and we'll get into staking in a later part of this podcast, but those stakers are able to earn not only link and traditional fees from users and uh, emissions when that exists, but also this basket of other assets and these other tokens of projects in the chain like ecosystem, which creates an interesting dynamic where the community who supports the Chainlink ecosystem are now basically incentivized to also support these early stage Chainlink projects, whether by using those projects or participating in that project's governance, staking in that project's staking mechanism, or you know being more vocal because you know they're financially incentivized. That's one of the advantages of having tokens in the first place. So it creates a very unique dynamic that I don't see in many other projects. I think Cosmos had something similar or has something similar with Cosmos 2.0. Luna had something a little bit similar as well through the airdrop mechanism. And so it's an interesting beneficial economic alignment that I think it'll be interesting to see how many projects join Chainlink Build. And we've already seen four different projects join the ecosystem, but it's really filling this hole that was kind of missing of projects who weren't able to pay previously. Yeah, I think someone on Twitter put it really well. I don't know if I saw this on Twitter or something or I saw it, I don't know where I saw it, but you know, basically this assuming these rewards go to stakers, you know, all the stakers are basically seed investors in all the projects that are supported through build. And so that, you know, that's a, you know, if these projects, do these projects are the next Ave or the next, you know, big project, you know, you're, you're basically getting tokens, you know, via by staking. And so I agree with you that it's, 
you know, you have this dynamic where you have all these projects that, you know, they're early stage. They don't, they, they might not even have a product yet, or if they have a product, you know, they're just getting going. They're trying to, trying to make revenue. Like they're not going to be able to pay an initial fund. So how do you get these? You, you want, you, know, you want these users to be able to contribute to the ecosystem for the services that, you know, the oracles are providing. Uh, and so this is like a very clever way of, you know, all these projects have tokens, you know, they have their own token. And so they can provide that into the ecosystem. And, you know, I see some people say, well, is that going to get converted to link? Like, well, you can't just like dump all their tokens and then, you know, the, no project's going to join that. So I think, as you said, you can earn user fees in link and then, and, but then you can also earn these additional tokens. So it's, it's, you know, I, I don't see how people, uh, you know, could not be excited about this because it's, it's, you know, basically every early stage project can now pay into the ecosystem, but also this really benefits these projects at the end of the day, you know, first the chaining community is, is quite big. Uh, they could, they can be very good at guerrilla marketing if incentivized, I would say it can be not good guerrilla marketing if they're not incentivized, but you know, they, they, a lot of these projects, they need to get, they need help marketing, getting their product out there, be, having people vocal about their project. So, you know, the more the chaining community and, in and, Chainlink, you know, as as a as a as an ecosystem, Chainlink Labs as a company can help these projects, you know, the greater their success, and then the greater success that people, you know, the people who you know the stakers and everyone and Chainlink in general can become. And so it's really like a, you know, a win-win relationship that you know the more we can support them, the better they do, the better we do. Um, so I, I am quite uh, excited, and also like Chainlink in general, you know, they can help. They, they, there's so many projects in the Chainlink ecosystem that say you're like, uh, say you're Trueflation, like it can help you find users that want to use the Trueflation data feeds, and that helps Trueflation. And so there's a lot of uh, ecosystem. The, the ecosystem in general can just help you find users, help you get your product out there, or your 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 whatever your service out there. So you know, I think it's a it's a way. It's kind of like a a success platform for early for early projects. Yeah, and it, it helps that the Chainlink ecosystem already has, you know, 1,500 projects in the ecosystem and is, you know, the I think there's a, Stephen at SmartCon showed a graph where the amount of GitHub repos that mentioned Chainlink is doubling every six months. Like that's that's exponential growth. And the Chainlink build blog post basically gave an example where when Ave launched in, what was it, early 2020, you know, they were an early stage project. They worked with Chainlink. They got, you know, I think it was 15 or 16 different data feeds that they needed to launch their market. And that was, you know, that was a record amount of assets that they could support on their money market at the time. And so they got direct support. They integrated Chainlink. The Chainlink community was very vocal and active users of Aave and, and Web3 in general, promoting their usage. And so like, there's uh, this is already kind of a proven uh, methodology of helping grow these projects. And so Chainlink build kind of adds a, a more explicit monetization, uh, incentivization model to that structure where the community can directly participate and earn uh, rewards for helping secure the Oracle services that these projects use. Oh, and one thing I was going to add too is, you know, Chainlink has a lot of other, you know, Chainlink hosts a lot of hackathons. They have a SmartCon event. You know, there's a, I think the Chainlink Labs team is quite big and can help in other areas. So like there's a lot of auxiliary benefits as well that, you know, projects can get just by being in the Chainlink ecosystem, not to mention the community. If they get behind a project, you know, that can really help propel it uh, into the you know into the wider crypto sphere, because especially given the amount of 
competitive, you know, how competitive it is for the mind share of people in Web3, you know, that can be a real differentiator. Yeah. And so Chainlink build basically, in my mind, it fills a very crucial hole and it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. But as dApps scale up over time, and if they're successful, then these projects naturally, if they're successful, start to actually generate revenue for their services. So if they're a money market, then that's like lending interest. If they're derivatives, then that's like trading on every fee, et cetera. And so as these projects scale up, they actually do have the resources uh, needed to pay for their dependencies like oracles. And, you know, a difference with Chainlink Build is Chainlink Build is in these native coins. You know, these are very early stage projects. They don't have a lot of liquidity. They're sensitive around that. But once you start generating revenue, revenue is often in like stable coins and these other assets that could be easily converted to Link and then paid to Chainlink service providers on whatever schedule works for that service since each Chainlink service has a slightly different payment setup. And so uh, effectively, this creates, you can think of it as like a payment curve where at the beginning, you're an early stage pre-revenue project. You can join Chainlink Build. You could pay in a portion of your token supply. Then as you scale up over the years and you start to generate meaningful amounts of revenue, you could provide a portion of that revenue and that creates a long-term sustainable economic model for every participant involved where projects, if they're you know, realistically sustainable, they can continue to pay through their adoption. Chainlink services receive the revenue and the payment they need to continue to exist. And then the users can pay for the blockchain gas costs for uh, creating transactions to interact with that dApp. And so over the long term, this is a you know sustainable model where there doesn't need to be token emissions. And this could be purely based on whatever the utility of that application is. And the revenue could be percentage based or it could be uh, some type of static schedule, depending on the nature of the dApp, the nature of the service they're using, how what, what blockchain that service exists on. There's a lot of different variables, but over the long term, I kind of see this as like the sustainable goal for every project in the Chainlink ecosystem is Chainlink is going to help you grow. The Chainlink community is going to use your dApp, support your dApp, uh, be vocal and you know support the security of the services that, that your dApp uses. Then over time, that kind of shifts where you know, it could be a sustainable relationship between these different entities. And so I think it's a clear model where before there was a bit of a gap to getting to that revenue sharing. But now with Chainlink Build, you can naturally scale over time. And if Web3 actually takes off like we think it will, then that is a revenue sharing opportunity with, you know, what we mentioned before, any dApp on any blockchain across any use case, providing their fees into the Chainlink network, which is why in my mind, you know, Chainlink is one of the widest value capture opportunities in the ecosystem, just because there is such a broad scope of data computation interoperability, these like universal needs that can scale with the ecosystem, not only scale with the ecosystem, but actually scale the ecosystem itself, along with this monetization layer that is required because that's the same thing as economic sustainability. So it, in my mind, it, it's a very clear economic system, or at least it's becoming more clear. And it's, I hope to see this evolve more over the future. I think every app is going to have to get to this point where I, I could see it happening two ways, although you know each one has its own challenges, but either the DAP revenue is going to be shared, like it's going to be collected on a DAP level, and then a portion of that is going to cover, you, know, you, you have to cover the cost somehow. Either Even if you were running your oracles internally, you, that's going to come with a cost. Everything's going to come with a cost. And so how are you going to pay for that cost? Now, projects could use their initial token supply initially to cover that cost, and but eventually you're going to have to capture that probably on a protocol level. And so I think either there's direct revenue sharing 
uh, at the protocol level or users are paying individually every time they make a transaction. Um, both, you know, different have their challenges, but I think this is where all projects will eventually get to is that they're some of the value that they're capturing will go to the Oracle services that they're using in their app to function. And I think that they're going to find that Chainlink will, I think, be the most cost effective and the highest security um, and as opposed to running, you know, paying for those internally or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I, I see this as really uh, the long game and it makes for a natural transition to go from build to revenue sharing as you cover both the early stage projects and the developed projects. And hopefully eventually you get to a full revenue sharing model, um, in, in, which is exciting because, you know, Chainlink can, can essentially share in the revenue of almost, you know, most projects out there considering uh, all the different services it provides and all the different chains it's supporting. Yeah, and I think to emphasize this point, Sergey had an interesting slide in his SmartCon presentation showing basically like the funnel of Web3 revenue where if Web3 scales up and disrupts traditional markets, you know, that's a multi-hundred trillion dollar opportunity. And if Web3 applications take a percentage of that value based on what traditional finance takes, one to 2%, then that's a few dozen trillion. And if Web3 infrastructure takes about 3% of that value, which is on par with the uh, traditional Web2 services, then that's hundreds of billions of dollars for uh, Web3 infrastructure. And if Chainlink captures that, you know, a significant portion of that Web3 infrastructure market, you know, that's going to be hundreds of billions of dollars. And now this is more speculative. We don't necessarily know how Web3 is going to evolve or what exactly the fee ratio value capture take of each layer of the stack is going to be. But I think this funnel is fairly clear that if, you know, if Chainlink is able to expand to all the different chains, all the different services, all the different use cases, then the revenue opportunity is basically significant for, you know, supporting the economic sustainability and providing that profit margin that the service providers need. And so I think that's in terms of like economic sustainability, it's going to come from revenue. It can't really come from any other source, really. And I, I mean, this is my opinion, but I, I do think eventually they'll just be trust minimized services that web two applications start to integrate. And that is like a whole separate market, even from web three. Well, you could say it's web three services, but it's not necessarily, um, you know, fully done on a blockchain, although the Oracle kind of part of the security of the Oracle is anchored to the blockchain. So you're still using the blockchain, but that service might be integrated, might be utilized directly by web two. And I think that's also a, a massive market that really is, really untapped at the moment but i could see this whole kind of like industry around trust minimizing part of your business as being like a kind of a competitive advantage over more time and i think it's it's not even necessarily like what's the web 3 opportunity what's the web 2 opportunity but just like when the internet was created people didn't know what types of applications would be created or would take off and so it's not only capturing and improving existing systems and existing processes and institutions, but what new protocols, what new institutions are going to be created, what new industries are going to be created as a result of having trust-minimized infrastructure in the first place. And that's one area that you can't really scope out because you don't know what you don't know. So that, that I think that's the most exciting part is you know what's going to evolve from this. But I think shifting gears a little bit, when it comes to like Econ2, increasing revenue is like one side of the coin. And if you had the other side of the coin, that would be the operating costs. So when you look at what the operating costs is for Chainlink services, decentralized Oracle networks, 
there's various different costs you could consider. There's, you know, the infrastructure cost of actually running the Chainlink node and the full nodes of the blockchain. You have, you know, if it's a data feed, you have the data provider subscriptions and those costs, but the primary costs, at least for the more widely adopted blockchains are the on-chain transaction fees, where every time an Oracle port is put on chain, that requires a transaction fee paid in the native gas coin of that blockchain. And depending on the environment, it can fluctuate. It could be higher, it could be lower. Ethereum, you know, is the most expensive given it's the most widely adopted blockchain and its block size is restricted uh, to maintain decentralization. And, you know, in this growth phase, a lot of these costs were supported through Oracle Wards paid in link, subsidized by link to support those costs. And as the revenue sharing and the revenue aspect of the ecosystem increases, that could begin to cover a lot of those costs. But if you're able to just reduce those costs in the first place, then you could just increase the profit margin, you know, between the revenue and the operating costs. And so over time, there's been various dif uh, different technical improvements in the network, like uh, off-chain reporting, OCR, which was a protocol upgrade in 2021 that was able to reduce the on-chain gas costs of publishing an Oracle port on-chain by up to 90%, which is a 10x reduction in operating costs. And at SmartCon, OCR 2.0 was discussed. That was a more generalized implementation for more services that can reduce costs by another 25% as well. And just in general, we're seeing blockchains become more scalable, whether that's layer two designs, layer three designs, side chains, subnets, supernets, you know, whatever structures, it's things are kind of paralyzing, whether it's multi-chain or multi-rollup, like blockchains are actually beginning to scale at this point. It, it's still early stages. It's still not perfect by any means, but when blockchains themselves are able to scale and increase their transaction efficiency, that's beneficial for the users, that's beneficial for that blockchain ecosystem for adoption, and it's beneficial for Oracle networks as well, where if you're able to reduce those costs significantly, the same amount of revenue can increase the profit margin for service providers. Uh, but even if blockchains become infinitely scalable, there's going to continue to be a cost to put data on chain or computation results or interoperability transactions, whatever. There's still going to be a cost because you don't want spam. And another one of the programs that were announced at SmartCon for Econ2 was something called Chainlink Scale. And Chainlink Scale is effectively a program where blockchain projects are committing to offset the operating costs of Chainlink Oracle networks that operate on their blockchain specifically. So just to give an example, Avalanche was one of the projects that joined this program. So they would be providing uh, node operators grants and AVEX tokens that those node operators can then use to publish Oracle ports on chain. And so in my mind, this is this is pretty significant given that the transaction costs are the you know the primary cost of operating Oracle networks, meaning the requirement for Oracle wards, which are the subsidized part of payment to node operators, isn't needed as much or could be eliminated entirely. So when your costs are completely eliminated or at least the majority of it, the profitability of Oracle networks can significantly boost where the same amount of revenue can significantly uh, accelerate at what point does an Oracle network become economically sustainable where, you know, that, that's kind of the ultimate goal of Oracle networks is not just, you know, covering the cost of operation and then also, you know, having a profit margin. But if you remove all, all the operating costs, then the time it takes to become sustainable is basically reduced significantly. And this is uh, this is like another one of those win-win economic relationships where blockchains need data, they need Oracle services, they want to grow their DApp ecosystem, their developers need Chainlink services. It's you know, for a new blockchain, an integration of Chainlink is one of the most in-demand things. And if blockchains are able to op uh, cover the operating costs of Chainlink services, 
significantly more data can actually be brought onto that environment, supporting their developer ecosystem and supporting the economic sustainability of the Chainlink network at the same time. So it's it's serving both interests of both ecosystems and growing the ecosystem at large effectively. Yeah, I see this as a, I mean, really, I, I see this as a, a necessary sustainable initiative. You know, Chainlink, can, can, you know, can't cover the operating costs of all chains for infinity. Um, that's just the reality. You know, for Chainlink to provide services into the long term for these ecosystems, you know, I think it these ecosystem, you know, these ecosystems covering some of those costs is going to really help those ecosystems grow their DAP communities at the end of the day. And if those if those blockchains grow their DAP ecosystems, then those blockchains become sustainable, and those blockchains generate more on-chain fees. And so, at the end of the day, then all the people, you know, whether you have stakers in that ecosystem on that blockchain, they also benefit. And so, you know, sharing those costs between networks, you know, them covering the operating costs, you know, user fees coming in, paying a portion of the node operators, and then maybe any additional Oracle awards that are help make the system holistic. You know, I think this is a real a real model. And over time, that transitions fully to user fees. So I think I really see this as like, this is like the second growth phase where it's a bit more holistic as opposed to purely chain link dominated. And this is really, I think, the only sustainable model uh, that can work. And then this should really help the, you know, I'd see this next multi-year growth phase. And then we kind of, hopefully as a, as an entire web three ecosystem, you will see the blockchains that succeed and the blockchains that don't. And, and those were, and those will generate a lot of user fees. I also think it, it's kind of interesting where scale over time, it could even evolve to become like a signaling mechanism of like how much, is Chainlink in demand on specific blockchain ecosystems? And if Chainlink is in more demand in some environments, those chains may be willing to provide longer term scale support for those Oracle services. And so, you know, I can't predict the future, but it'd be interesting to see if there's some kind of like, you know, some kind of like battle over like, we want Chainlink services, you know, we'll provide you more scale benefits. I think that's a very real dynamic that could exist in the future. Yeah, I also think that it'll be a really good mechanism for getting developers onto Ethereum L2s because you will have those uh, you know, scale rewards and incentives to build on L2s. I mean, they already exist, but then they're going to exist even more, which they which you know they likely won't exist on Ethereum L1. And I think eventually they will move to the various Ethereum L2s and then that Ethereum on-chain cost will diminish greatly over more time as well. And that'll really, that'll really enhance the... Um, Chainlink economics. Yeah, I mean, we already see like Metis was one of the projects uh, in the scale program and they're in Ethereum L2. And ultimately, like even like the Ethereum ecosystem, that's how they're scaling is via rollups and L2s and L3s. It's still during like a very early stage in that process. Rollups are still kind of being developed out. But, you know, the more L2s that join Chainlink scale and the more Oracle services that could provide in that environment, the more feasible it is for projects to transition from Ethereum mainnet over to these L2s or even from other networks, uh, you know, projects shifting from Ethereum mainnet to other blockchains that have Chainlink scale where they can access to more of the Chainlink services that they need at a lower cost themselves, where, you know, some network, some blockchain network being expensive, you know, is detrimental to the users, to the Oracle networks and to the dApps who have to cover the operating costs of the dependencies that run on that chain. And so if the whole ecosystem can be incentivized to shift to lower cost environments, and Chainlink scale could be one of those, uh, you know, it could be like a carrot to incentivize uh, these projects to shift over. 
that's beneficial for the whole ecosystem. You know, users don't want to pay as much, devs don't want to pay as much, and the whole ecosystem becomes more economically sustainable because lower operating costs means less revenue needed for sustainability. So I think it's kind of interesting where with Econ2, it's kind of a two-pronged approach of like Chainlink Build is focused on accelerating the adoption and supporting dApps at the dApp level. And Chainlink Scale is basically allowing uh, blockchains to grow their ecosystem at the blockchain protocol layer. So like Econ2 isn't about, you know, just extracting value, taking all the value from the ecosystem and running away <laughs> or something, but it's actually about growing the whole Web3 stack across multiple layers while at the same time supporting the economic sustainability of the Chainlink ecosystem. So I think that's one dynamic where Chainlink has always been focused on not just growing market share, growing adoption because adoption's great and they want market share, but because if we want to move L if we want to move Web3 to a state that is actually useful and is actually sustainable, economically sustainable in the long term, then Chainlink is kind of one of those infrastructure ecosystems that can actually incentivize and push projects to move in the direction needed to accelerate the ecosystem. So I think it's an interesting dynamic between those two. Um, I don't know, CEO, if you have any other thoughts before we jump into the, the big staking content? No, I think it's, like I said, I, I really just think it's the next stage of growth um, where, you know, if Chainlink is this public good, you know, well, is this kind of communal public good, you know, it can't just be Chainlink basically supporting everything. I think everyone, people realize that. And so how do we then get these early stage projects in while still contributing some resources? How do you get blockchains to contribute some resources? And then and that then, you know, kind of incentivizes Chainlink to continue this high standard and also, you know, maybe helping them support specific services that they need or customized services that they need. Uh, so it helps them as well. And then, uh, that helps foster this kind of next level of growth. Uh, because if, Ch if Chainlink was running just by itself, you know, it, it, it can, well, where like eventually it'll run out of resources. And that's not, not good for everyone. And especially given the quality of, of of uh, services that Chainlink's providing and, and the expansion of services it's continued to, to provide, you know, it's it's just, it makes sense to, in my opinion. And it's and also, like like I said, it benefits these participants as well. It's not just Chainlink benefiting, but it's really these build projects are getting a lot out of it, especially if the Chainlink community can get behind them. Uh, you know, that those projects, that's invaluable to these projects when everyone's competing for mindshare. And same, if you can incentivize builders to build on your blockchain by joining the scale program all these blockchains are competing for developer share and so i think this could really differentiate uh when, when the margins between this two like everyone's competing you know that could be a real differentiator yeah the the analogy of like you know the best place to be during the gold rush is to be selling the pickaxes like i know that's kind of cliche but even in that analogy like you're not only the service provider servicing everybody in that community but you're actually enabling that community to serve their role in the first place. So I, I kind of, you know, with Chainlink being like this neutral protocol layer, benefiting all dApps, benefiting all blockchains, it's, I think it's an extremely unique project where like there's competitors in the Oracle space, kind of, you know, Are but <laughs> none that matter really. But, you know, when, when you look at the blockchain space, it's totally different. Like you have all these chains that are hyper competitive. They have this benefit or they have this benefit. They have that trade-off. You know, same in the DAP space, which, you know, is arguably even more competitive. And then you have like isolated communities and different chains. Like it's all 
everything crypto is hyper competitive. And then you have these tokens on top of it, which then people are financially incentivized to back certain projects. And so like, it, it, you know, it's not a bad thing, but it's just, it's a dynamic that exists, but then Chainlink can kind of sit back and go, okay, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter what chains or what dApps actually win. You know, we just want to grow the ecosystem. And if we could provide the services, if we could support our economic sustainability and grow the ecosystem as a whole, that's a win-win for everybody. And the revenue opportunity at the same time can be significant if, you know, the end goal of growing Web3 to a global level, it can actually be achieved. And I think you want everyone to contribute in into one network because, okay, say you don't, then Chainlink eventually, you know, can't support itself. And then what, a new, new someone new comes in and then we have to hope they're reliable and we have to hope they're sustainable. And it's like, you just, what, keep switching around? Like, it, I don't think that really makes sense. I don't think dApps want to do that. Like, they want something that they know they can rely on long into the future. They don't have to worry about switching down the line. They don't, like, they know that they can get new types of Oracle services, customized Oracle services. Um, you know, they know that this network is reliable for that. Uh, you know, like, worrying about, you know, oh, an Oracle, a new Oracle coming along and Chainlink going out. I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone, most projects, I don't think almost any project really wants that. Um, and so you need to find a, a way for everyone to contribute to kind of create this uh, sustainable network that then benefits you as you grow. Yeah, and I think at this stage, at least for the key verticals where Chainlink's kind of become standardized, there's not really the ability to displace Chainlink necessarily. You know, and like you said, nor would projects really want to switch anyways, because then you're just kind of gambling with user funds. And what benefits would you get because such a new competitor is not nearly as economically sustainable. So either they're going to be heavily diluting themselves to catch up or it's going to be prohibitively expensive and you get worse quality services. So like that's kind of why the shift towards sustainable growth and value capture happens when it does, you know, not just for Chainlink, but for any standard, because you can't immediately go to the value capture route immediately because then you could be more easily displaced. But once you have an economic moat, you have a network effect moat, then you could transition towards a phase where you could support the sustainability of your own ecosystem without the concern of really being displaced. And for Chainlink in particular, because it's not a monolithic network, it's more of a, a permissionless framework where people can build their own Oracle networks built to their own specifications and their own committees of nodes and their you know own sources, whatever. You know, there, there's not really a need for another solution when anything you want to build could already be built on top of Chainlink. Plus, you get the network effects, you get the crypto economic security, you get the economic uh, economies of scale. Like it, it's at the stage where it's in everyone's best self-interest to support the growth of the Chainlink ecosystem because that will directly feed back into themselves, whether directly or indirectly of just the growth of the ecosystem or the services they provide. So I think shifting gears once again a little bit beyond increasing revenue and reducing operating costs, the third pillar, you could say, of economics 2.0 is, you know, the long-awaited staking. And just to provide a kind of a TLDR overview, if you're not aware of Chainlink staking, it's effectively the ability for a new type of service provider, a staker, to lock up link tokens in a smart contract as basically a commitment to the proper operation of a specific Oracle network and improve the crypto economic security of that network. And that could be achieved in various means, but uh, over time, as Chainlink scales up, it's effectively the slashing of that link, an economic penalty, and over time, even evolving to a form of loss protection, which you can kind of consider as like insurance. 
providing a payout to the affected users if an Oracle network does not meet the conditions on which they were supposed to operate. And so in last June, there was a roadmap posted for Chainlink staking, kind of laying out how, just like any other Chainlink service, it would progressively roll out in different stages with different functionalities added on top over time. And this is initially beginning with Chainlink staking v0.1, which at SmartCon was announced to be launching this December. And this effectively sets up an initial, like the initial foundation for staking by introducing a decentralized alerting network where stakers can raise alerts if a Oracle network, first ETHUSD on Ethereum, does not meet the uptime requirements that it is committed to uh, to perform on. And you know this is a very limited utility at first, but it sets the groundwork where over time, stake slashing can be added, loss protection could be added. And on the reward front, the rewards can switch from subsidized staking rewards to user fee revenue sharing from dApps and then also the build feed uh, build fee rewards that come from the projects that join the build program. And so, you know, a lot of the elements of how other Chainlink services scaled up is the same way that Chainlink staking will also scale up. And so uh, this initial implementation, people can go check their eligibility where it launches in various stages of a initial early access where community members based on their historical activity of holding link or being a active contributor, being an evangelist or being a part of one of the Chainlink hackathons uh, can contribute to the Chainlink v0.1 staking program. And I think just to set clarification, there's different entities in which people can stake in the Chainlink ecosystem where there are node operators themselves who could stake and directly back their services, as well as the community being able to directly stake in the protocol for the ability to raise alerts and over time support stake slashing and loss protection to provide greater assurance to users over time. And so I guess the point I'm emphasizing here is that just like how price feeds started with a single Oracle network with three nodes on Ethereum and kind of stayed that way until it was proven and then scaled up over time. And now there's a thousand Oracle networks with you know 60 plus node operators, tens of billions of dollars secured. You know, you can't go from zero to hundred right away. Uh, if you try and go that route and try to build everything perfect the first time, then if you find out one of your assumptions and the foundation is wrong, you know, you got you have to basically start all over rather than starting at the foundation, testing if the foundation works, then building the feature set on top and scaling from there. And so I think that's kind of one of the core things is that uh, if you have feedback on Chainlink staking, then like certainly provide it. And, you know, it'll evolve over time based on what the demand of users are, the feedback on the stakers and, and so forth from there. And so, you know, Chainlink staking, when you put it in the context of not just the crypto economic security it provides, but in the economics it provides, it's effectively a way of introducing, you know, a reduction in the token velocity where service providers are able to lock up their tokens, provide a security assurance to users, therefore gaining the ability to earn revenue from users. You know, the revenue, sh revenue sharing fees, as well as like the build fees serving as a basically best way to put it is like a token sync, uh, you know, either offsetting inflation as well as serving as the opportunity to actually, you know, take some of the value of the ecosystem that flows in. Yeah, I really see kind of if since we're focused on economics in this uh, podcast, uh, there's really, in my opinion, two economic mechanisms coming into play. So stakers are providing this, you know, crypto economic security for the network. And from that, basically, they're getting uh, a reward, and and I find interesting that they're getting, they can get 
uh, so in, in the future, they can get these user fees. Um, so right now, you know, and initially they're getting these Oracle awards. In the future, that transitions to user fees for securing that network, and then also stakers can receive these build rewards. So I think you know you're kind of seeing Link as this as staking Link is providing this crypto economic collateral, which is then rewarded. And I think the other thing that staking does economically, and and not necessarily um, in the initial design, and I think people should really you know, just keep in mind that, you know, yes, these parameters are, you know, the initial staking design is kind of, is pretty minimal. And so it, it's probably, it's, I would say, it's, it's, you know, in, in the post, it even says it's a beta version. You know, I think it's quite experimental. Um, so, you know, yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of evolution in the staking design over time. So I wouldn't take this one and be like, oh, this is, this isn't the staking that I saw. You know, I think that, you know, it's clearly going to evolve over time. All these crypto ecosystems evolve over time. I, you know, they you have to see what works, what doesn't work. Um, but the other mechanism, I think, is really this idea of reputation, staking-based uh, rec- reputation. Whereas, you know, node operators or this and that can earn more jobs on the network in the future by staking Link. And I know this is not necessarily so much in the initial design, but this is something that you know I think creates a very cool uh, economic mechanism for the network. Obviously, that could be the only reputation-based metric, uh, but I think it will become an important one. That really creates this incentive for nodes to stake Link in order to provide more crypto economic security, which then gets them more jobs. I mean, why would I choose a node with less stake? If, they, if I assume that all of them are reliable and have great uptime, why would I choose one with less stake over one with more stake? Um, so th- those are what, you know, I'm excited. And one other point I wanted to make, because I know, you know, some people were concerned that you weren't staking to node operators. And, um, you know, I think, you know, if you look at LinkPool, I think, you know, LinkPool is one of the best node operators in the entire uh, Chainlink ecosystem. And, and these node operators can really build business models beyond just, uh, you know, staking Link. You know, they, they can, they can help, they could do Node as a service, and I think there's a lot. They can help bring data providers online and, and these kind of things. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity for Node operators to build much bigger business models um, that are their own kind of separate thing. And and I think that can be incredibly valuable. And I think if anyone can achieve that, it can be Linkpool, who's been around the longest. So I, I think you know that's just something for people to consider uh, as they think about Node operators in the bigger picture. Yeah, and I think over time, like as staking evolves, there will be various different types of ways for stakers to join the ecosystem. Like initially, you know, node operators could stake directly, community members can stake directly. And I think over time, you know, with node operators, I'm sure there'll be some type of delegation system in order to stake with those node operators in addition to the various other stakings uh, formats that exist. And the way I kind of think about it, at least like holistically, is that it's basically the shift of link from a token that is primarily used to pay for Oracle services to, you know, service providers like node operators to becoming a type of productive asset where you stake and lock up your link and then you earn revenue uh, in link and, and in other tokens. So it becomes more of a revenue generating asset that is, you know, if you want to be a service provider in the ecosystem, you have to stake link. You know, whether you want to be competitive with other node operators and improve your reputation and your commitment that you, you are going to perform honestly, or you want to support 
you know, the loss protection mechanism or uh, the other layers of, you know, incentivization that exists around staking, in my mind, it's kind of like a mind shift of what exactly Link is as an asset from payment token to revenue sharing token, which is kind of a, a, a shift. And I think that that's ultimately kind of the bigger takeaway. And this will take time to kind of evolve and play out and, you know, become more refined. But that is, in my mind, kind of the shift that is happening here. I think you made a good point there in that there probably will be various types of staking over time. You may have staking pools. You may have nodes you stake directly to. So I don't think that there will be one form of staking over a longer time frame. I think there'll be multiple. Um, so, you know, like I said, this is, this is just the initial version. So it'll be interesting to see how that play out and what kind of dynamics kind of, you know, alter the direction of how staking eventually matures. Yeah, and I think... I guess like wrapping it all all up together, like, you know, when you consider Econ 2, and I've, you know, kind of said this before, but like it's the three pillars of, you know, increasing revenue, which is not just increasing revenue, but providing ways for early stage projects to actually pay in the first place, because the alternative is not being able to pay. The second pillar being able to reduce operating costs, whether through technical means or economic means, like the scale program and blockchains covering operating costs, as well as bringing on, you know, the third pillar of, bring in new ecosystem participants and stakers, which could generate this new layer of crypto economic security and kind of shift what exactly or how exactly the link token is used within the ecosystem uh, as a productive asset. So in my mind, you know, Econ2, it's it's about shifting. We mentioned this before, but it's like shifting from just hyper growth, growing the ecosystem, you know, growing at all costs and shifting to a more sustainable growth mode where it's still growing but in a more sustainable manner with a greater focus on value capture, not just for, you know, value extraction sake, but for the economic sustainability of the ecosystem and all the service providers within that ecosystem. And I'm sure that Econ2 will probably continue to evolve over time, whether it's the evolution of programs or it's new programs, you know, based on feedback on what works, what doesn't work. You know, this isn't like, you know, Econ2 is here, this is finalized, this is the final state of Chainlink or anything like that. Now, there could be continual evolutions, particularly as the industry as a whole evolves. We don't know what, we don't know what Oracle services will be in demand in 10 years. We can predict based on what's needed today, what we could see what, you know, users are asking for. But, you know, in 10 years, it could be a totally different set of Oracle services that have different economic requirements that require, you know, have different needs from the service providers. And, you know, the, the flexibility of the Chainlink ecosystem historically has worked, you know, Price feeds helped boost the growth of DeFi, basically made it possible in the first place. VRF helped the creation of on-chain gaming and dynamic NFTs that you can verify are actually random. You have keepers or chain like automation that can create more automated trust minimized application. And you have you know, CCIP, you know, it seems like every other day if some bridge is getting exploited and losing, you know, hundreds of billions of user funds or hundreds of millions, hopefully not hundreds of billions, not yet. But you know, CCIP can help fill that niche of an actual secure cross-chain interoperability solution, both between blockchains and traditional uh, institutions and enterprises. So like, I, I guess the point is like, you know, Chainlink is going to continue to evolve over time. Nothing is finalized, not in crypto. And that it goes with the economics where it's, you know, kind of converging around the point where Chainlink is economically sustainable, because that will remain kind of the center point goal of like an ecosystem that can sustain itself, rewards service providers who provide real value and service providers who provide real services that users actually need. And it's just converging and finding the programs and the approaches that can actually get to that point. That's the reality that all, every crypto ecosystem is evolving. It's like way too young to like say, oh, 
we're set in stone. I mean, maybe Bitcoin, but even Bitcoin will eventually have to deal with its um, security, you know, the security of its its crypto economic security. So, uh, no, nothing is finalized. I think people, you know, giving feedback and helping improve it. And at the end of the day, look, this is not some Ponzi-nomic economic system. If you want that, you know, go somewhere else because, you know, Chainlink is trying to build a long-term sustainable model. And I think doing a, I mean, I think with these programs, this is really a great step in that direction. Um, and so, you know, if you're looking for something that's, you know, going to be like where the whole product is its economics, well, you know, that's, you probably want to look elsewhere. Yeah, I've mentioned it before, but if it, you know, if your project's product is its token and its economics, then it's like you don't actually have a product. <laughs> You're basically just a Ponzi, and it's like that. And that's honestly fine if if people know it's a Ponzi-nomic system and people are are aware of that. But like that's not what Chainlink is, and the economics is not the product; it's the Oracle services. The economics is just a requirement for those products to sustain over the long term. So, you know, I, I think. Chainlink services and Oracle infrastructure, at least my thesis is that it'll continue to have one of the widest value capture opportunities, just given the nature of everyone, every dApp, every blockchain, every use case requiring some type of Oracle service, data, computation, interoperability, like those are kind of core fundamental needs along with the settlement that blockchains provide. You know, Oracles provide everything that blockchains do not, cannot, or don't want to provide in the first place. So it's like a, I see it as like two puzzle pieces, blockchains, and oracles that come together, they create hybrid smart contracts, which is basically a requirement for any real uh, application, any real use case in Web three. Yeah. So 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 to sum up, I think it's you know, there's a huge there's a huge Chainlink maybe has the biggest value capture potential. Uh, in order to put this economic system in motion, where it's not just growth, but it's growth that also is on a path towards sustainability, and also takes into account the utility of the token within the network is to one chainlink build you're getting pro early stage projects to pay into the network in a manner that makes sense for them and also they're receiving a lot of benefits the revenue sharing is a is a way for projects over time to contribute to the network and then you have chainlink scale which allows blockchains to help support the growth of their networks which then creates a larger dap ecosystem for them and that helps cut the on-chain operating costs of chainlink oracle services so you're lowering those costs for oracles you're also increasing the fees with build and staking is a way to for the link token to be used to secure the network and for doing that you're earning various rewards did i get it yeah i think that pretty much sums it up all i can say is uh last words this excite this excites me it does thanks for listening everybody shit this moving is moving is moving okay let's go